It's Thursday, November 26, 2015, and you're listening to episode 384 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 20 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. Man, it's it's like married sex. We just got right into it. This is Brodor. <laughs> it's going to be efficient. <laughs> like I said, like married yes, sex. Like, efficient. <laughs> That's what I tell my wife. <laughs> Even though Brodor's French. Oh, good times. All right, so it's just me and Brodor. We're going to do a somewhat short episode because we are recording this the what, two days before Thanksgiving. And because of that holiday coming up, most of the hosts are unavailable, and I am dealing with a total shit show trying to get my car to pass inspection, <laughs> which I'm not even going to get into because, honestly, it has me incredibly angry. So we're just not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about gaming instead. So, Brodor, there was something you were saying at dinner that got me thinking and I want you to go ahead, talk about what you're telling. Sure. So I'm I'm reading Robin D. Law's Hamlet's Hit Points, right? And it's really interesting in terms of that the the idea of the book is, is that he's going to take the play Hamlet and the movie Dr. No and the movie Casablanca, and he's going to analyze the story beats of them and then relay it back to gaming. And then how you can be a better game master by tracking the up and down beats between the hope up beats and the fear down beats of the characters, the antagonists in the story. Right. And he relates it back to how you can be a better game master by tracking these story beats. And I thought to myself, it's really fascinating because as somebody who enjoys dabbling in writing and likes to storytell and do role-playing game stuff, I had never considered mapping out the story beats of a game session or an arc that I was running. And it made me think that, you know, all of these three classic stories that he's analyzing, um, they all have a downward trajectory. I mean, ultimately your hero Okay, not in every situation, obviously. But the idea is, is that you want your hero to go through these series of adversity, but then by the end, they persevere, they attain their procedural goal or their dramatic goal. And I thought, I've never done that for my games. And should I do that? And how would it make me a better game master? So was his suggestion specifically to do this when? During the game? After the game? So he, before the game? So he doesn't really he doesn't really say, but it is pretty clear that doing it during the game could be complicated. There's one point in the book where I read recently where he suggests doing it after the fact. So I have uh, made a commitment to do pretty in-depth post-action reports or debriefs with myself to track my game session notes after the fact. So I think I'm going to try doing it there to look at the main bullet points that I hit and where these overall upbeats or downbeats for the party and try to make sure that I have sufficient downbeats so that those upbeats are really significant like they are in the three classic stories that I mentioned. Right. What that got me thinking about was I was actually skimming through, and I'll stress here, skimming through, I didn't read in detail, an article that was kind of similar. It's about pacing of games. It was specifically geared towards D&D. It was very narrowly focused on D&D, and it had some tips for mapping out different 
parts of the game and and the speed of the game and the sense of urgency or whatever that was within the game. And it gave, I mean, what I thought was overall some pretty solid advice. But as I was reading it and really looking at the length of this article, so maybe it just scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. I started to think about something, which is I think that there comes a point where the deconstruction of a game becomes destructive in its own right. You know, there is certainly time between games, if you're really wanting to get the most out of your role playing, to think about the way you approach story writing or thinking about how you did during the last session as a player or as a game master or what kind of rules are going to work best for you or how to take some of the rough spots or boring parts and polish them up and kind of train your mind to think about the game in a somewhat different way. I guess what I would liken it to is sports sciences, where if you look at people that play this sport or that sport, they can work out a lot of detail. I mean, there's an enormous amount of research and study that goes into the performance of these athletes because there's an enormous amount of money to be made off of them. And so they look at, I mean, even things like how well is their breathing exchanging oxygen and, you know, if they threw or swung a bat or kicked at the slightly different angle that would produce a slightly different effect. And they can work out in all these details. They can show you footage from past games and see, well, you, you have a trend to do this. And so we need to either train you away from that or get the rest of the team to be prepared to play around that or to take advantage of that. But then there comes a point when you're playing the game and you have to put that aside. Either you've internalized it or you have not. You know, you cannot stop the game, I, well, I guess, depending on the sport. But in many sports, you cannot stop the game to sit down and do that kind of analysis. When it comes time to throw the ball, kick the ball, swing the bat, you just have to do it. You know, you can't pause for all of that. And as I was reading this article and as I was listening to you talk about this thing from Robin Laws, I think it's all great advice. You know, I don't have anything against what any of these people are saying. And I mean, that's what a lot of our show is based around is deconstructing gaming and offering tips and advice and all these different tools you can put in your toolbox. But one of the things that I think people have to keep in mind is there does come a point where gaming is not science anymore. It really is just a very simple performance art. And if it's something that you have to deconstruct that much, then you've got to really know yourself well enough to say, am I going to bring this to bear at the table? Well, and I think that's that's really the great advice is that we can read books about gaming and about game mastering and about writing. But the question is, is that is it actually practical and useful at the table? So for me, what I've done as I've been reading the book, and it's it's a, it's a quick read. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm half retarded and dyslexic, so I will read it much slower than most. <laughs> but... I've gone back and I've looked at my current fifth, fifth edition D&D game and I've looked at the notes that I have taken, the session notes that I've shared with my players because I'm like, guys, did I miss anything? Is there any imp anything important that I need to highlight? Am I wrong about a detail or what have you? But then I've gone back and I've looked at him and I said, okay, what kind of beat is this? Is this a dramatic beat? Is it a procedural beat? Is it a pipeline beat? How, how does this 
further the story. And one of the things that I, I ran into in my most recent game session is they had an encounter with an NPC and what I had intended to be a procedural downbeat, something that was an impediment to the progress of the players. It really ended up being kind of a bullshit stonewall and i could feel it at the time like during the game session and and when it was over i could feel that it didn't land right and that i just that i didn't play it right i mean i did the npc just fine but it didn't ultimately further the story so for me i think the really the best advice that i i'm getting from this book so far and maybe it was intended maybe it wasn't but the unwritten advice is is that Every single beat that they're playing in these stories and every single beat that Robin Laws is mentioning that he's addressing are all beats that further the story to some degree. They don't stall the story from one perspective or another. They're all furthering to a particular dramatic or procedural goal. And I think that's an area where I, as a game master, sometimes miss. Sometimes I'll put an impediment in and it's just kind of an obnoxious impediment and it doesn't really further the story. Right. You know, something else I could think to compare this to is back when I was in college, I took an art history class. It was just some stupid elective that I had to take. What was her name? I mean, the chick you were trying to bag and start <laughs> No, no, no. Because you didn't do it on purpose, right? <laughs> no, I was sitting in the back. It was very much just a, uh, I've got to knock out these credit hours on Understood. something. And that was one of the classes I could have taken to knock it out. And so I did. And the guy that was teaching the class, it was uncanny. He was John Larroquette. Uh, it was really uncanny. This guy looked, sounded, everything exactly like John Larroquette. <laughs> I'm probably dating myself a little bit by even knowing who John Larroquette right. is. <laughs> Just thinking about Night Court. Yeah. <laughs> and that episode where he wakes up and the Eskimos have him and he tells him his name is Dan, Dan Fielding. And so they call him Dan Dan Fielding the whole rest of the episode. <laughs> anyway, that's too too much of a tangent. <laughs> All right. But the, the point being that when I took that course, he was a great professor and he knew a lot about art and about art theory, and about art history. And he taught me an enormous amount that at the time, despite having little to no interest in it, I actually did a really good job of remembering and internalizing whatever. But as the years went on, my brain just kind of compressed it down. A lot of the things got dropped, but there was a certain amount of the advice, there was a certain amount of the information that I internalized. Let me give you a real simple example. A lot of people don't like modern art. For most of my life, I've been in the exact same boat. I didn't like modern art. But the way that he explained it was he said, and this was a much, much longer lesson, but generally what he said is that the point of modern art, at least in some degree, was similar to the point of music, in that it's not per se supposed to depict anything in particular, but experiencing it is supposed to be a positive experience overall. And so it's supposed to be simply forms and colors that by themselves are pleasing to the eye or evocative emotionally or whatever. Now, in the course of the study, we went over all kinds of theory behind modern art and the sciences behind modern art and different artists and all these kinds of things that I could not recollect any of it for you. But when I walk into an art museum now and I walk through a modern art exhibit, I perceive it a bit differently than I did prior to taking that class. And in the same way, I think there's a lot of great things to talk about with a role-playing game about 
why do certain things work or not work? Or if you're struggling with this area, what are some ideas that you can use to try and figure out how to get out of that rut or whatever? But at the end of it, I think everyone has to be realistic of their own expectations that they cannot memorize, much less actually act out, all of these really complex systems of, well, am I doing this? And did we did this? And did we cover that? And, and have I had too many of these or too few of those? And do I have my whatever worksheet perfectly maximized to, to make this you go as quickly as possible? But instead, there's going to be this distilled, this purified bit of essence that you actually take to the game table that comes out as, well, I don't remember all the details about the group template. But I do remember the group being cohesive is important to the game. And so that's what I'm going to go with. Or I maybe don't have memorized all these different types of story beats that Robin Law has laid out. I mean, hell, sitting here listening, I have no idea what most of the ones you just mentioned even mean. Yeah, but, I, I didn't either until I started reading the book. But could I on the spot at least have an intuitive sense that I've got too many of this or too few of that, or a point wasn't received right, and so I need to counterpoint it another way, but have this more programmed, instinctive, intuitive feel of what things ought to look like. Right. So here's the challenge that I set for myself, and I won't get into a gaming story, but me as a game master, until the last year and a half or so, the thing that I've mainly obsessed and focused on was the imagination and the performance of the game, right? I want to have something that's exciting and adventurous and imaginative and try not to repeat things that I have done with the same group, right? I try not to go back to those same old rote trope things, right? I try to use different monsters and have different story ideas. But what I've done with this now, now that I've been reading this book, is I've looked at the game and I've only run a handful of sessions and we only meet once a month. But what I'm trying to do is look at what look at what I've done for the game thus far, analyze those in terms of things that have been adverse for the party or downbeats and things that have been positive for the party and upbeats generally as a whole and try to have more downbeats than upbeats. So those upbeats feel really, really great. So the party feels challenged and they have adversity, but at the end of the day that they are successful in enjoying themselves. So I try to do that as a group, but now another thing that I'm doing is the between game sessions, I'm emailing players individually about things that they want to pursue or what have you. And at the same time, I'm considering those downbeats and those impediments to their their dramatic or their procedural goals and try to have enough downbeats and enough upbeats that they're like, oh, this is difficult and complicated. And I have these other stressors and challenges, but huzzah, I've won the day and overcome this challenge, et cetera. So to try to make it engaging for them, because one of the points of the book, and I think this is really interesting, is that all the other forms of entertainment that we engage in are quite passive with the exception of, you know, the video games that you're doing, but sure. your books, your plays, your film, it's all passive. And so with an interactive, a, a very, a very proactive sort of entertainment, I think that as the game master or the person facilitating the game, I think I owe it to my players to try to have that same level of engagement for them that they would if they were doing passive entertainment like a film. Have you ever had it, though, where you've gotten to the point 
that you are trying to juggle so many things mentally, you get caught in the briar patch. Oh, that, sure. The, the details. Oh, yeah. All the minutia starts. Because that's one thing I've certainly hit up against that I am so concerned. You know, I think back to something we've talked about or something I've read in an article or read in a book or heard on another podcast. And it's like, man, you know, I, I don't want to use this trope and I need to follow that advice. and I need to be sure I do this. and I do that. And I am suddenly second guessing everything I do throughout the course of the game that not only does it slow down my ability to produce, but at times I think it actually lowers the value of the production because where something like a simple trope would have filled in just fine. Right. I'm trying so hard to not do that because somebody told me that was a bad idea, which generally speaking, it might be because it's overused. But in this particular instance would have been absolutely fine that suddenly the game slows down and gums up and becomes, you know, it just, it doesn't work. Right. Right. I think something that for me, and I suspect that it's true for most people is that There are certain universal truths, right? Those tropes and those cliches exist because they are part of the common experience. And I think that you're right. We do ourselves a disservice if we try so hard to avoid those things, to come up with something unique and creative that we miss some really obvious, fun, low-hanging fruit. And, And again, I won't bore you too much with the gaming story, But in my game, one of the players has this romantic background, and I just sent him an email that, hey, during your downtime, this thing occurs with your love interest, and she ends up getting you this really super expensive gift and leave this vague love note with the gift, right? And, you know, it's crazy chick gonna boil your bunny sort of thing, right? I mean, it's it's perfectly... I was guessing it was that or she sent him diapers. <laughs> perfectly. You know, it's, it's perfectly cliche and been done a hundred times, but it hasn't been done in this game with this character, with this NPC, right? And so how is it gonna play out? Is it cliche? Sure, a little bit. Is it a little bit on the nose? Yeah, absolutely. But will it be fun for the player and myself to engage in, even if most of it is just email correspondence and background for him that a lot of the other player characters aren't part of. eh, Yeah, I think that has value. And and I think that it speaks to his experience as a participant in the game and certainly my experience as the person facilitating the game. Right. So who cares if it's cliche? Who cares if this crazy chick bought him a really fancy sword that is going to give him prestige in the community? Not because it's magic or anything, but because it's made by this specific guy. And thank you, uh, Ken and Robin, because I got that advice off of your show. All right. Well, I think we can let this one rest here. Like I said, being Thanksgiving, we've got a lot going on. So we wanted to be able to record, edit, and release an episode while dealing with our own holiday stuff. But we didn't want you guys to feel like you were forgotten, especially those of you that aren't even in America and are not observing this holiday. So we skipped the foreplay. We both climaxed and we're back to the TV. Pretty much. In what, 20 minutes? Yep. Success. Exactly. Married sex. We'll we'll cuddle on the couch while watching Gotham. (laughs) I don't know if we're going to (laughs) cuddle. So anyways, thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games. And we will catch you next time. Bye. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2015. Listeners are free to use this show in any non-commercial endeavor as long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the Pulp Gamer Media Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at pulpgamer.com.